edition of Musical Explorations, and this week we are going to look at something very specific. Uh, but this specific thing has influenced music since its inception and still does it today, okay? What we're going to do is look at the sonata form and how composers have used that and what it means in the context of writing music. It's the most versatile form. People end up using it, even if they don't think they're using it, they end up writing things in kind of the quasi-sonata form. We've discussed different uh, manipulations and different things composers have used when writing music. I mean, they, they do it, of course. Why? Because they want to develop a personal style. They uh, want to add, uh, extend tonalities, and they also want to add musical interest. So they do different type of manipulations to things to do that. We looked at, we looked at cadences. We looked at harmonic styles. We looked at expansion of, har of tonality. We've done all these different areas and looked at all these different areas in music that composers have used all the way up to the 20th century. You know, we looked at scales, modes, harmonic expansion, degradation, of course, of harmonic, reemergence of tonality, repetition, silence, and, and briefly some forms. Uh, we touched briefly on forms. And today we're going to look a little bit further into forms. Music has a form. Uh, people sometimes don't think it does, but it's like a building or a car right? Uh, it has a form. It's a thing. It's, it's inside of a form. Now, unlike, unlike a car or a building or something or anything of plastic arts, you can't hear music as one thing. It, it only exists after you apprehend it and digest it and, and figure it out and are led through it kind of that way. It's more in that sense like a novel or a, a dance or uh, a movie in a sense that it unfolds before you and how the director or composer does it, how well they do it and, and, and attach the different sections together and the storyline together is, is whether how entertaining it is or captivating or whatever. So Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, he's a, a poet, writer, people have heard Goethe all the time. He lived from uh, 1749 to 1732. And as far as we know, Okay, so this is like the 18th century into the little parts of the 19th century. As far as we know, he was the first person to compare music to everyday things. Uh, we've always compared music to the lofty, the heavens, the God. There was music of the spheres with Pythagoras and the Plato and those type of people. And, and music can move the soul. It can do all these things, ephemeral things. But Goethe said, to me, architecture is frozen music. So he said that, that, that buildings, things, are in a sense frozen music. Now, we don't know if he uh, said the corollary. We actually had to wait uh, until Frank Gehry came up, and, and uh, the famous deconstructionist architect, and he said, well, look, if music is frozen, if architecture is frozen music, then is music liquid architecture? And it might have an analog, it might not. Music does have form, I and mean, it has a form that you can follow, okay? And that's what we're going to look at, is this form. And the, the most impressive and important form to come out of, of all of music has been called the sonata form. You can say in our day that the binary form, song form, is the, is the dominant musical form. But even that is kind of changing in a in a funny way. So it's not so simple just song form anymore. It's it is 
still song form, and I'll explain what that means. It's a binary form, basically two little themes, A and B, a chorus and a, a, a verse and a chorus. But it's also expanded, and, and it always has expanded, and it's done it in popular music now. Okay. So, of course, in Goethe's time, much of the architecture was still the Baroque architecture. It was still that florid, lots of lines. If you look at the Gothic and Baroque buildings, they look very ornate and uh, uh, lots of uh, filigree and uh, that type of thing. And, and probably Goethe was talking about that because music was never just a, a static uh, like a block building, like we went through with the modernists and and uh, some even some of Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, buildings of square things and you know however interesting they might be, it's it's probably not applied to music except if you get into abstract music. But but there's little from uh, uh, the plastic arts and music. I mean it's just not there. It's because plastic exists. I mean it's there. You can look at it. You can walk around it. Music you can't do that. You can hear it several times and you might hear different things. But music exists in presentation. So, uh, and depending on how well it's performed, you might get two different views. I mean, you might listen to a Beethoven symphony, say the ninth, the Ode to Joy, da, 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 da. But you hear a terrible performance of it and you come away with a completely different impression than you would if you heard a very good performance. Okay, along with all the uh, musical devices that composers use, we, we use a form. And, uh, and, and the form, you can actually detect what these forms are. Like I said, in a song form, which is a binary form, A and B, you have a verse and a chorus. It's very simple. Well, I'm going to play a section of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. If I'm sitting on top of the world, and I'm going to talk over it and show you where the themes, the binary themes are, okay? And there's a brief intro. We have theme one or the verse. Here he comes. All the summer and all the fall, just trying to find my little all and all. Here comes the chorus. so we can get to a new section. Here's the A section again, so just like a verse. Here comes the chorus. Extension on there. Here's the verse again. Comes the chorus. Now she's gone. Well, I don't worry. I'm sitting on top of the world. And we have some variation. Okay. Back to the verse again. Yeah. Way I 
chorus. Okay, you can go on and on with verse and chorus until the cows come home. Okay, so it's an example of binary form. There's a verse, an A section, and a B section. Now, in Bob Wills, this is basically in blues format. And what he did was he used the latter part of the blues bar structure to put in the chorus. And sometimes it's not done that way. Sometimes people take changes. It's not, nothing is exact in music. However, remember, theory always follows practice in music. It never has been where somebody writes a theory and people start writing music to it. We've tried that with computer programming and stuff like this with the software things, but it doesn't work because theory is, ne is uncreative it's an analysis of creativity, whereas creativity is creative. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay, so that's an example of song form or binary form. Two parts, A, B, A, B, A, B, A. It can vary a little bit. It could be A, A prime, as this one was, as you heard. There's a little variation in instrumentals. But it's still the same harmonic structure leads you to the same place. So the form of that piece, or most binary pieces, is A for the theme, B for the chorus, A, B, A, B, just like that until the song ends. That's binary form. Very simple, two parts. Sometimes they can change. You can throw little variations. You can extend things and add little turns and things like that. Sometimes people would take one of those sections and just vamp. They would just take a couple of chords and vamp back and forth, meaning they just play repeating the chords. Like we know them as successions in classical music, but it's called a vamp. It's just a, an extended section where you just play a couple of chords and the instruments just go off and solo off. Sometimes you can vamp over a, a chorus or you can vamp over a verse. You can do all these different types of things. It's just basically a, an extended section that just repeats over and over and over again and the musicians go off on these solo flights of fancy, which is, which is a lot of fun. So pop music and, pop and, and folk music, those type of things, almost exclusively binary form. There's a few that don't. Okay, but most of them do. All right. Now, <clears throat> art music and classical music uses tertiary or three-part forms. And this came about for a number of different reasons, one of which was most of the music that we have in the West was influenced heavily by the church. The church likes ternary things, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and all that stuff. But it turns out that the sonata form has nothing to do with the church. The sonata form is really the first piece of music that we have that came strictly out of public theater. And this is, uh, the public theater is a lot different than, than everything you've heard about history. Shakespeare worked with the public theater. The public theater existed, even with all these royal uh, things existed and the, and the people with money had their own orchestras and stuff like that and had their little concerts in their houses and in their castles as the, as the, the enterprise and the, the commerce class came into existence, there still was a public theater. Even, even when the church ran everything, there still was a public theater. Now, sonata comes from Latin, okay? It's sonum for sound or sonar, which are sounds, it's, a, it's the plural, and it just meaning sounds, sounds. Now, what, how did it develop? What happened was that the public theater used to have like skits and they would have singing. Most music was associated with the voice, the cantata, the cantare, singing to cantar. And the, in between those acts, they would have solos. They would have people who would come out and play. 
and they would play instruments. They'd play cello or they'd play viola da gamba or they would play some other instruments. We're talking about late 1600s, 1700s. Slowly, these people started taking these pieces and they would, just like jazz musicians did, they would take a theme and they would maybe make a counter theme or make something else or a chorus and then they would take a third part and they would do an improvisatory section. They would improvise in this section in the middle. That became what's known as a development, okay? So it's, it's sonata, means to sound, right? You're sounding something, you're not singing something, cantare. So we have sonatas, which is a piece of music in a form, but we also have cantatas, which are vocally based things, all right? With, uh, with voices in them, cantata, sonata. All right, we're talking about the 18th century, 1700s. All right. The dominant style, this thing became like the big popular thing. Uh, it became, you know, the soloists would be performing these singing pieces, and then afterwards they'd have the, they'd say, well, let's hear the, the, the cellist play something. Let's hear the, the, the harpsichordist play something or the whatever the instrument was. And these guys would come out, and they would do just like today. Guitarists and rock bands play these wonderful florid solos. Well, they did the same thing uh, in that time too. Sometimes they'd improvise them. They would write, uh, take a, an existing figure and just use it and, and vamp around just the same as, as we do today. And they would write classical pieces to them. So slowly over time, these instrumentalists either composed themselves, they improvised, or they hired a composer to compose pieces. And as the sonata and instrumental music became more and more a part of the general music as, op as opposed to singing became part of the general music uh, and singing retreated into the church and instrumental music became the dominant form of music in classical world. Now folk music still is mostly, except for dances, except for um, uh, uh, dances in the theater, it was mostly uh, singing in, in folk music because you sing songs and stuff like that and you'd have dances, that was the instrumental part. And that dances came out of interludes in the singing where people would start dancing around and, and do things. But we're not going to cover that today. We're covering the sonata form. So uh, women were, remember, women were not players. Women were not composers and did nothing in the 1700s. They did virtually absolutely nothing in music except they would play in salons. And they played for themselves. They play, play early guitars. They would play little instruments for themselves. And the reason was people would have parties. At these parties, the, uh, it was a polite thing to do that the couples would split and the women would go off and do women things and the men would go off and smoke and do whatever the men things were doing. Okay, And they wouldn't co-mingle in that respect necessarily. But in the women's part, they would play little pieces for each other, and they would play songs in the, the, the little in the in the little chambers. Uh, um, they would play uh, uh, the salons. They would play little uh, pieces for each other, and they would learn new little pieces, and they would entertain. Sometimes they would entertain uh, for the dinner. But they also picked up in the sonata thing. They started playing these little things, and the sonata form was was getting uh, more and more and more popular. Now, one of the reasons the sonata became really popular was that it's extremely versatile. It, the sonata is, a, remember, a three-part form. There's a, a first theme, a second theme, an exposition. In other words, you take one of those themes, either theme A or theme B, and you do something to it. You manipulate it in some way to make it more interesting, or you vary it, or you, 
or play it in different registers or you make it longer or you make it shorter. You can do all these different things with it. And then you come back to the original theme, but the original theme is still, it'd be like theme A. Uh, so it's still considered, even though it might be in different harmonies and different things, it's still considered a three-part form because you're using the same basic theme. So you've got theme A, theme B, and an exposition, and then a repeat of theme A. So that's just considered A. So it's called a three-part form. Now these have changed over the years. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a Mozart piano sonata, and I'm going to then break it down and analyze it and show you how these themes work. It's a very simple one. Everybody knows it. It's the little one in C major. Uh, he actually wrote it later in life, but he, it's, a, it's a, a, a very, everybody plays it. Anybody who plays piano has to play parts of this thing for their first uh, piano thing. It's the, it's the one that goes uh, Okay, it's in C major. Everybody knows it. And it's listed by Kirkel number. Okay, now Ludwig Ritter von Kirkel, he was a composer and a botanist and all this stuff, but he's most famously known as the guy who made a chronological listing of all of Mozart's works. So even ones that have come after him, they fit into the Kirkel system. So the K that you see, uh, and this one is K545, uh, written later in Mozart's life. So let's find a recording and listen to just the first part of it. Okay, this is known as the exposition, exposing. You're exposing the themes of the piece. And there's two themes in here and then two transitions. And the transitions are related and the themes are not, even though they're, they're, they're both tonal. Now, the way the sonata works is very interesting because the sonata uses a process called modulation. So you, you present your, your first theme in one key, in this case it's C major, and then you modulate through a transition after you present the theme into another key, the dominant. Remember we talked about the tonic-dominant relationships in, in, in Western music. Okay, this starts in C major here. And in the sonata form, what you would do is you would modulate to the dominant or the G, the five. Remember this relationship? In Western music, it dominates Western music. But what it does in here, not only does it use that that cadence and that structure, but it also modulates through a couple of other keys or notes, chords, to the, uh, to the dominant, to this G, and then the second theme is presented. Now I'm gonna show you how that works. Mozart didn't fool around here. He didn't have an introduction. He jumps right into the first theme, and here it is.
after the theme's presented, he does a modulatory a theme. Now remember, modulation is that process of moving from one key to another musically. In this case, he's moving from C to G, as we talked about. And he writes this modulatory passage. It's kind of a transition. And here it is. key am I in here? G. Remember, we started in C. Now we're in G. Just as when we heard the first theme, we have a two measure. It's basically the first theme was two measures. Now we have a two measure theme that's extended by a transition passage. Now, sometimes people say that those transition passages that I'm calling transitions are really just a second part of the original theme. In other words, there's a theme with an extension, on theme one, and then theme two with an extension. But it doesn't matter how you look at it in a sense, but you have to recognize, all you really need to recognize is that there's two themes, theme A and theme B. And this exposition of the themes or presenting of the themes is called the exposition as part one part of the three parts of uh, the sonata form in addition to the use of melody. Okay, now as the sonata developed over the years and became more and more and more expansive, the reason I chose this one is it's a very practical model for the, an explanation of what the sonata is. But sometimes composers got very creative with how they extended the themes and how they used different harmonies and different uh, devices and techniques to extend that just that basic sounding out of the theme. In other words, you play a theme and then you play the second theme and then develop that one of those themes. That's what the development is called. We take either one of the themes, doesn't matter which one, and you develop it. You, add, you do some variations on it. You add some other things to it. You extend the theme out. You do something. So there's a repeat in this thing. I'm not going to play any of the repeats because it's, uh, it's pedantic, but uh, let's go now to the development section and let's take a look at what did Mozart take and use. Remember what I said, where did this development section come from? In the early days when performers were performing this in the public theater, this is where they would improvise. They would take present the theme. Usually it was a theme that people knew if they were doing an, an ad hoc uh, improvisatory performance. If they were playing a written piece, which became the, the way it was done later and later, and if you, for, the, for the wealthy people wanted things that were more formal. But the public theater was more uh, raucous in a way. So um, you, would, you would get a theme and you play the other counter theme, maybe a little variation or something, and then you would do a development. And that's what they looked at. They, uh, the, po the power of these artists and composers to improvise upon a theme in the development section. It's one of the things that completely breaks classical music and art music away from popular music is the fact that there is this whole idea of taking a theme and taking a musical idea and intellectually developing it along musical lines to make it more interesting or more varied. Now, as I said, remember, first theme is in C. And then we modulate to G, and we present the second theme, and we cadence in G. That ends the exposition. 
You don't have to do that. You can cadence in anything else. Sometimes composers use three themes in uh, sonatas. Sometimes they use four. Sometimes they did different ways of manipulating the theme. Sometimes they tried to make the exposition a set of variations. All things have been tried in the, in, uh, by composers to make things more interesting and more personal. So let's take a look at this development section. Mozart, this wily guy, remember he wrote this later in life, he has fooled us. He didn't use the theme from the first theme. He didn't use a variation. He didn't use a variation of the second theme. He used the transitions, and he used those transitions to modulate all over into different keys, and that's what he did as his development. In other words, he said, okay, look, I have a theme one. I have a theme two. I have these extensions. We can call them parts of themes, too. But since those are modulatory passages, I'm going to just modulate all over. So he didn't use this one. And he didn't use this one. So he didn't use either of those. He used the modulatory passages and he modulated all over the place. Okay, so he remember, he started the first theme in C the second theme in G, then he extended that G all the way through a whole bunch of different key centers until he got back to the C where he was going to play the first theme again. That's called the recapitulation. So a sonata form is exposition, development, and recapitulation. When you go to hear a piano sonata or you go to hear a symphony, most symphonies are, are written in sonata form. There's some other movements aren't, but usually the first and the last movements are big sonata forms. What you can do is you can actually hear and know what those themes are, and you'll be able to hear them. And you, you can hear them in all different types of music, even up to contemporary music. Contemporary composers use the sonata form. So now you know that there's three parts of sonata form, right? It starts in uh, the exposition where they show the themes. Then we do a development section, a middle section, where this kind of improvisatory, where you take either an element of the theme, or as Mozart did here, you take part of the modulatory transition, and you develop it just like uh, you would a, a set of improvisations or a set of variations. You do something with it that's different, and you change the harmonies a little bit. Then you get back you want to say, everybody here, we're done with the exposition, and I'm going to play the first theme again. And here it is.
wait a minute. Wait a minute, you say. That's not a recapitulation. That's not the first part again. It's almost like it's an, an extended uh, uh, development. I mean, he took the first theme, dun, 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 and he, then he went all of a sudden in a couple of measures in there, he went off in a completely different direction. That's what a recapitulation was supposed to do. The recapitulation was not supposed to be a direct repeat of the first theme. That would be extremely pedantic. It was a, or the first and second themes, the exposition. You don't just repeat the exposition. You change the harmonies. You, you add interest. You do something different to it. Even though it's based on the first theme or based on the form, that this one, measure for measure, fits with the exposition. However, he's changed the harmonies. He's changed how the pieces move through and the different keys that he modulates to in this thing. It's almost like an extended development. But it's not. It is a recapitulation, and that's how he ends the piece. And, and he takes it right up to the end as if it's the ending. But he did not modulate here. In the section, he used this to get back and modulate through some keys and then go right back to, where were we? C major. There it is, the end, C major. The basic sonata form. Now, you've seen it broken down with, a, with a, an example. And now a warning. Now you know the basics of sonata form. I mean, you, you shouldn't be able to understand it. You should be able to pick some themes out. We're going to play some other works and see how they go. But the, here's the thing. No, no two composers really wrote sonatas the same way. And even the same composer would use slightly different variations inside of how they worked with the themes, how much they put extensions on. Now, had Mozart written this sonata earlier in his life, it probably would have been much closer to a true structure of a sonata. We'd have the theme with, with probably a very short transition, then the second theme, and maybe a short transition so you could modulate, right? And uh, you'd, uh, you'd also have a little short transition at the end of the first theme so you could modulate. And then you go in and do the development section. And sometimes it's in the, in the dominant key member. If we're in C, it would be in G. And then in that, in that development section, you slowly modulate back over time to a C major so you could then bring in the recapitulation, the first section again. So that's the sonata form, right? A couple of themes. Sometimes there's three. Sometimes there's more. Sometimes there's just one. And as we saw with Mozart, the clever guy, do, took the extensions and used those in his development. Sometimes there's no development. You, you never know. The composers change things differently. But if you see the name, Sonata, you know that it's going to start on whatever the key it is, and it's going to present a contrasting key, a theme in another key, and it's going to develop one of those themes, and then it's going to uh, have a recapitulation, come back to the original theme. And then sometimes, even in the, in the late Romantics, and other times they had a thing called a coda, and this coda was supposed to be so that the, the performer could improvise. And some composers write them out, and some composers, some uh, performers improvise them and do a pretty terrific job. So let's listen to another sonata by a very well-known composer, and we will take a look at that and how it differs from the one that we heard with Mozart.
I chose the Moonlight Sonata, obviously, from Beethoven, because everybody knows this work, the first movement anyway. It's probably the most popular piece of music ever written and is played by more people. Even more people know this and know the Ninth Symphony, which everybody knows everywhere in the world. But uh, people actually know this work. Uh, now, in our time, Furrow Lees has become very popular with young people, but um, it is really, uh, this is the most popular work that Beethoven wrote. Now, why is this uh, thing called uh, a sonata? It is a sonata, but it's a, uh, he calls it a sonata quasi-fantasia. Now, a fantasia is kind of a free-form piece. It can move anywhere or do anything, and 
what he's saying uh, uh, in this is it's a sonata, almost a fantasia. And there's reasons that he says that, because it doesn't follow traditional sonata form in many, many ways, okay? He doesn't use the classical form of Haydn and Mozart and the form that we showed earlier, but he does have two themes and a very short development section taken from a modulatory passage. Remember what modulation is, and I'll talk about later. Okay, Beethoven wrote this in 1801, published it in 1802. It was so popular that everyone wanted to play it. Just like I said before, people want to play for Elise today. A lot of people taking piano want to learn that piece. He even made uh, uh, simplified versions and had them published for beginners. And it was probably the most popular song ever written. Now think of a popular song today. Even with our advanced communications and accessibility, nothing approaches the popularity of the Moonlight Sonata as a musical in musical history. It was so popular, everybody wanted to play this thing. Every, it was played everywhere. It was publishers made a fortune off of this. Beethoven didn't make a lot of money off of the su subsequent publications in other countries. Copyright laws weren't the same. And he also republished it in, under a different name. He published his same music under different names. So it was very interesting. But it does have two themes. And we're going to show you what those themes are. Here is theme one. Now, the theme doesn't come in until measure 10 of the piece, so there's a long introduction to get to that theme. And here is theme 2. So the first theme is Okay, that's basically the beginning of the theme. The second theme is is this, it's in a different key and it's this. This goes down to measure 28, where the development starts. And the development starts with a, a use of another theme, and that theme is this one. It's a variation of the first and second theme. So he's got a development here. That development goes on. It's, only, it's, a, it's a short development, and it's built on modulations. It modulates all over the place, different keys. Okay, I'm not going to belabor you with all the keys it goes through, 
but suffice it to say it goes through many keys. Now, one of the devices that Beethoven loved to use was a modulation to the flatted sixth chord. Remember, we talked about chords in keys. So I'm going to put this in C major so it's, a, it's easier. This piece is in C sharp minor, but I'm going to play it in C because it's easy to understand. Here's the C major scale, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. If I play a chord on C, it's called the tonic. If I play a chord on D, it's called the supertonic. If I play a chord on three, it's called the mediant. If I, I play the uh, a key on the fourth, or the F, it's called the subdominant, right below the dominant. If I play it on G, it's the dominant. Remember that relationship, the dominant, five to one. On A, it's the submediant. On B, it's called the leading tone. Okay, leading tone, because it leads back into C. There are other chords that you can use in the scale. They're called altered chords. And one of the chords that Beethoven loved to use throughout his life and all, the, all of his music was the altered sixth chord, these sixth chords. We have the, the, the Neapolitan sixth, the French sixth, the Italian sixth, and the German sixth chord. And Beethoven loved those things. He also liked to modulate from, from the tonic. We'll say if it's in C, he, he liked to modulate and use the flatted sixth. In other words, the, the, the sixth chord, which would be A minor, he liked to use that as a modulatory thing. And also in a succession, he would use this type of sound. Okay? So this piece is full of those six chords. He doesn't always use them as the basis for modulation. Remember what modulation was. Modulation is the establishment of a new key by harmonic manipulation. In other words, you try to find a note that is similar or a chord that is similar to both keys. If I have C and I play um, uh, F, okay, where else is F a, a chord? It's, it's a four chord in C, but in uh, B flat, it's a, a, a dominant. B flat to F is a dominant. So I can have go along and play, have my key established, G, uh, C. I can move up to F, have that be a pivot chord to B flat, and then modulate by establishing the key of B flat using the F as a pivot. Beethoven pivots all over the place, and he uses chords on the second. He uses diminished chords on the second, diminished ninth chords, which is a very interesting uh, uh, thing. It sounds kind of like that. But when he plays it in the piece, you don't hear it. You just hear it as it, as it flows along. Beethoven was a master composer. He would never put anything in there that would be completely out of character. Also, these six chords that he used, he would use them uh, in, in ways we call the Neapolitan six. And what it basically is is a, a major chord on the flatted second. So if, you, if in the key of C, if he played a D, that would be a second chord, right, D minor. But if he plays a major chord on that flatted second, the D here, that would be called a Neapolitan. That's a Neapolitan six. Beethoven loved that stuff, and he used it all the time. The development section of this really is more just a kind of a modulatory passage. It just modulates through a bunch of different things until we get over to measure uh, 43. 
And on measure 43, what do we find? Back to the original theme. Uh, so we have the exposition, a modulatory development, and a recapitulation. If you listen to sonatas, even if you listen to contemporary ones, and then next week I'll play some sonatas from contemporary composers, um, I'm, uh, you'll see, and I can point out the same things. You'll find the same elements in them. The uh, idea of a theme presented, that theme was altered or maybe a different theme, and then a developed, it's developed like an in improvisatory section, and then the uh, recapitulation. And often they would have codas in these things, and I'll show you an example of, of, of a coda in a Chopin piece or maybe something like that. But the sonata form, Okay, basically a three-part form. You know, there were earlier ones uh, in Scarlatti and, and um, Handel that were binary, but it all basically was the same idea. Present a theme, alter it in some way, and then recapitulate back to the theme. Very much like a jazz piece. It plays uh, the uh, original theme and then plays uh, 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 improvisation on it and then plays the theme again so you know it's towards the end. That's basically the sonata form. Very simple. Okay, what are we going to do next week? I'll go over the sonata form again a little more, and I'll play some other examples and some contemporary uh, works where the sonata form is used and how people varied it. Now, I'm not going to do a detailed harmonic uh, explanation, but I will cover some modulations and some things like that, some key relationships. This is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations.